Welcome to Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion and culture with the personalities that shape it. My guest this week is Nick Wooster. Nick has been in the fashion world for over 30 years and has held stints at Barney's, Bergdorf Goodman, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, and more. If you're into men's fashion, you know exactly who I'm talking about. He's the Woos God. I spoke with Nick about how he got into the fashion world and what on earth is going on with it right now. We also talk about what happened while he was at JCPenney and how at the end of the day, he feels he's just a guy who's in it for the clothes. Wait, one second before we begin, I want to talk about your wallet. Whether it's in your jacket pocket, back pocket, or purse, it probably needs an upgrade. Come on, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's got that old movie ticket and a receipt from someplace you don't even remember. Get on your computer or your phone right now and go to frankclegg.com. Frank Clegg Leatherworks is a family-owned company in Fall River, Massachusetts, specializing in leather goods, briefcases, and accessories. They also make the best wallet, period. I recently downsized my wallet and switched to the folding card case, and I feel like an actual adult now and not a clown. Get it in the brown tumbled leather and they'll even monogram it for you, right? You'll be cooler than your friends with their ratty old wallets and you can flex till high heaven. So go to frankclegg.com and upgrade your wallet now. Nick Wooster. The the Woost God. The Woost. The the man with the mustache. The meme. I, I don't you have more introductory titles than any person i've ever talked to i always wanted to be a renaissance man you you're 100 a renaissance man <laughs> i'm so not no um how are you doing today i'm all right good thank you so much for coming on the pod thank you for having me um bunch of things i want to talk to you about a little bit about your backstory i know you're a midwest guy you're you're from lawrence salina, salina. kansas Nuts. I went to school in Lawrence. Rock Co- College. Jayhawk, go KU. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, for some reason, uh, Roosevelt said that Rock Chalk Jayhawk is the greatest college chant of all time. Really? <laughs> that's serious. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's, their, that's one of the claims of fame. Um, what, wait, what's life like growing up in the Midwest? Well, given that I grew up, I was born in 1960. So it was such an incredible... I mean, it was total leave it to beaver. I mean, honestly, truly, really, because it was, I lived on the main street of town. We didn't lock our door. You know, my parents, when we drive somewhere, they would leave their keys in the car. There was no such thing as, I mean, like nothing like that could happen where a car was stolen or somebody would break into your house. So I was very lucky. You know, we just, my parents were like, go outside, like get out. Don't, don't be indoors. It's like the complete opposite of kids today. So, you know, we rode our bikes, we'd stay out till eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, we'd come home for dinner, we'd go back out, nobody asked any questions, and it was, I mean, to say it was wholesome, it really was wholesome, you know, until I started drinking and doing drugs, but like, (laughs) (laughs) which happened early on. Sure. But, um... But it was just, it was, you know, like happy days. I mean, it was, there was drag racing on the main street of town, you know, that would, and my parents were very, they were very concerned about how we would cross the street because they had drag races at night. It was like right. loud. But I grew up on the front of the house, or my bedroom was on the front of the house, which is why I'm convinced that moving to New York was no big deal for me because I can sleep through anything. But like, you know, the kids, <laughs> drag the kids would literally drag up and down Santa Fe, which was the main street. And, um, you know, my dad was a mechanic. My mom stayed home. So we had like dune buggies, go-karts, all that kind of crap, snowmobiles. And of course, I was interested in none of it except for the cute guys that would want to come and ride on them, you know, too. So I'd be like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, I'm kidding, but no, it's true. That's, um, that's amazing. Yeah. It was just a super, you know... I had two, I'm the old, well, in my AA qualification, I will say sometimes that um, I grew up as an only child. Okay. Unfortunately for everyone involved, I had two younger brothers. Oh. Because um, I was very adamant about wanting to be an only child. Yeah. And they sort of functioned as a unit, and I sort of functioned as my own unit. Because, you know, I was like a gay guy, a gay kid, and they weren't. And so it's like, they didn't, nobody really knew what to do with me. But it was fine. You know, it was perfectly fine. Right. And 
So you stayed in Kansas up until, I guess, college, right? Until I graduated from college. And, and then I, I went back to the, to the I, I, I came back, worked at the clothing store that I had worked at in high school and college, and saved money so that I could move here in January of 1983. Okay. I graduated from college in May of 1982. Right. And, uh, you know, I've been here or I've been... Not in Kansas since then. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like it was in a totally easy transition, no problem. I had an aunt and uncle that lived here, so that also okay. made it a little bit easy. Um, Your they, parents were cool with it? You're just like, I mean, was, was going to New York always on, on the horizon? You know, I, I, I can't remember the movie, but I remember seeing some movie as a kid, you know, I was probably 10, 11, 12, 13 something, and you know, it was some movie about New York, and I'm like, ooh, I want to live there. And uh, for no reason, I didn't, you know, understand that it would be, as a gay kid in Kansas, that that would be the smart thing to do. It just was like, <laughs> ooh, this seems really cool. Right. Um, and so I never really thought about it until I graduated, and then I was like, oh, I got to move to New York. And um, I, I studied journalism in school, and so I wanted to work in an advertising agency because I thought that was like a legitimate business. So a little bit like Mad Men, a little bit like Darren Stevens on Bewitched, I sort of you know, thought, oh, I'll, I'll work in an advertising agency, which I did, and which was horrible for me. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you know, people love to talk about millennials being nightmares. Well, for sure... I was exactly the same as you are. Like I was a horrible, entitled, spoiled twenty-two-year-old working in a you know at an advertising agency. And I, when I got my first review, which right. was like the equivalent of a D, okay. you know, I mean, it was like they didn't fire me, but like they should have. I was so you on like a personal development plan. <laughs> exactly. I was so like, what are you talking about? And I know that I was a terrible, terrible terrible employee what were you what were you doing at that agency copywriting I, no i was an assistant account executive working on procter and gamble like oh nice high point decaffeinated coffee it was a <laughs> terrible job and it was because it was basically like being a banker it was like all data and this was in the you know we didn't have computers like it was all kind of done on green ledger paper with rulers and calculators and of course i smoked pot every day and got high <laughs> and um <laughs> Oops. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> but um, yeah, and you know what? It was not for me. It was not for me. Yeah, and and you said you were working at a clothing store in high school. So I mean, did, was the bug of you know finding a way to to be in the fashion world, or is it just like you kind of fell into it? I wish I could say I was that clever that it was about fashion. It was just a. <laughs> I, I'm still only in this for the clothes. Like, it was just clothes. Like, oh, the clothing business. Okay, cool. Can I get a discount? Oh, wow. <laughs> Can I get it first? I mean, that's still my my operating principle. Like, I just, I'm in it for the clothes. I mean, if I can live okay, then sure. But, like, really, I just care about stuff. Um, so, yeah. So, I when I was a kid, you know, my parents totally provided for me in that way completely in the middle you know when my parents were like of course we'll pay for college you can go to KU or K-State like yeah. you know and I'm like here, but I want to go to UCLA or something you know it's like no KU or K-State take your pick and it was the same with clothes like of course they bought me clothes but when I announced that I wanted a cashmere sweater my mom was like well if you want a cashmere sweater then go work for one and so I figured I might as well go for, to the source I mean she was happy to buy me sweaters they just weren't cashmere so it was like oh so I went to the nicest clothing store in town, put on a, you know, a jacket and a tie and said, hey, do you need any help? And they were like, we do. And so I started working at 16 years old. It was called Joseph P. Roth and Sons Clothiers. And it was um, you know, a nice preppy store. And uh, so I'd work after school, 3.30 to 6 o'clock, and then on Saturdays, and then during Christmas breaks, summer breaks, I would work full time. $2.40 an hour was the minimum wage in Crushing 1976. It. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, and, and what happened is that, like, pretty quickly on, Charlie, the, the, the son of the owner, um, would be like, hey, Nikki, uh, like the, because literally the salesman would come into the store in those days. And right. That's how they would buy stuff. I mean, they, we would also go to, on buying trips in Dallas or Kansas City or even New York, but 
you know, these, these reps would come on the road and they would, so like the Gantt salesman would come in and he had like mattress plaid shirts. And so Charlie would say, Hey, Nikki, pick the five best plaids. And so you would take your change out of your pocket and put like a quarter on like, you know, on the best plaids. And he, oh my God. he said, okay. And then, Hey, Nikki, pick the five best striped ties. And so I'd pick the five best striped ties and Hey, Nikki, what, you know, which colors do you like here? So that's how it started for me, this idea that like, oh, and I started to learn about taste and about how to, you know, choose things and like why you would choose one thing over another. And so, and then he, he said, hey, Nikki, do you think you can do the windows? And so like I did the windows for Christmas one year and then it was like, I started doing the windows and then they, he invited me to come on a buying trip. Like, hey, Nikki, come with me to. Kansas City, we're going to go, you know. This is like you're 16 years old, you're going on a buying trip? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, 17, 18, 19. Right. Through college. And then I also worked at the preppy clothing store in Lawrence, Mr. Guy. Um, Because again, I was in it for the clothes. Like, I just wanted the discount. Like, I was always buying clothes. What what did your, I mean, so you come, did you get the cashmere sweater? Of course I did. <laughs> so wh- how was that like when you come home, you have the cashmere sweater, and you're like, I earned this now. Like, what's up, mom? Well, you know, I would like to say, I mean, I do, I know for a fact that I was instilled, not by my choice, but I know that I was instilled with a, with a work ethic, with an idea that, like, if you wanted something, you had to... Now, trust me, I would prefer not to work, <laughs> <laughs> but I must. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and, you know, today I'm happy to say that I get to do a lot of really interesting things and I'm super grateful for it. But like at the end of the day, I still have to work. So because I buy a lot of shit, I'm not saved. I do have some savings, but not like the kind that, you know, people my age can now start to think about retiring. That is not my reality, but I'm good. I'm down with like working as long as I get to keep doing interesting projects and working around nice people. And for the most part, that's my life. Well, you're also, I mean, and I'm not going to try to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me that you're also doing what you love. So the whole point of retiring is to not work and do what you love, right? Like, Which would be laying by the beach, laying on the beach. Okay. So and I would happily do that. Okay. Hopefully, maybe, maybe there's a, a new sort of uh, consulting gig that involves you laying on the beach and forecasting trends or something. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to I wanna jump back to New York real quick. So you're at this ad agency. You hate it. Um, as most people do. And they didn't really like me either. And when, when do you actually jump ship and now you're getting paid as a career to be in this clothing world? So after working in the advertising agency for two years, I sold advertising space at New York Magazine for a very short-lived year. And they diagnosed my problem, my drug problem, long before I did. And, um, you know, they gave me a really great opportunity and I, I still speak to the he's actually not the publisher anymore, but a guy named Larry Burstein, who was a super nice guy. They, they tried to, you know, help me out, but I just was not, I was 25 years old. I was just not willing or able to sort of hear. So when they fired me, I basically didn't work for a few months. And, and a woman that I had met said, you know, what do you want to do? And that's the first time I sort of articulated, I want to be a buyer. And she was like, okay, well, I know someone at Saks, you know, and they, she introduced me to this buyer at Saks and the buyer was like, Hey, listen, you know, we don't just have buying jobs available, but if you want to go in the training program or if you want to start in the store, I'm sure that they would be happy to talk to you. So the training program was, you know, started like a school year and this was in April or something. So I was like, no, I need to work now. So I went into the store as an assistant apartment manager at Saks Fifth Avenue on the you know, in those days, men's, there was part of men's on the main floor. Mm-hmm. And so in 1986, that's what I did. I, I started as an assistant apartment manager and, um, you know, I was there for exactly a year. It's a terrible job. They pay you no money. I made $20,000 a year. Like you're basically just moving clothes Yikes. all day long. Yeah. Um, but you learn about retail, like Another part of, you know, because buying merchandise is one part, but then the other part is like selling it. You have to yeah. do something with it. The story. Presenting yeah. it, you know. And I, I still am friendly with some people from that time. And I mean, the names aren't going to be anything to you, but there were actually some really famous people in the world of menswear that were all sort of there at the time, like Roger Farah, 
who was the CEO of Ralph Lauren, now he's at Tory Burch, he was the men's GMM. Um, Bertansky, who became the CEO of Nemo Marcus, he's now retired, he was the store president. Um, Margaret Spagnolo, who was the men's GMM at Bergdorf's, she's now working with Paul Stewart, I believe. She was the men's accessories buyer. So there were several, Wayne Meichner, who was at Ralph Lauren most recently, John Varvatos, he was another buyer. So mm-hmm. there were like a lot of people who ended up doing other things that, you know, were there at the same time. So it was a really great education. Um, it was, it was, it was like standing on your feet and being educated in a different way. And after a year, I, a girl, a woman who worked at Saks went to Barney's and this was the year that Barney's had just built the women's store going down 16th street between 7th and 6th Avenues. I mean, now all that's the Ruin Art Museum, but it was like their expansion into women's. So she said, oh, listen, Peter Rizzo, the men's GMM, is looking for an assistant buyer. And so I went and met with him, Gene Pressman, Fred Pressman. I had bleached white hair like Billy Idol. And, um, (laughs) and, you know, and I got that job, and it was like, holy fuck. You know, Barney's, 1987. It was, you know, Simon Dunan had only been there a year. It was really really major yeah i mean that was that's when barney's really came up on the map right oh yeah it was you know so that was my first sort of buying job and you know again like another one of those things that i was so lucky you know usually people are an assistant buyer for one two maybe three years right i was an assistant buyer for three months and then they fired this guy and they made me the buyer so you know, I but again, it was just a different time. I mean, 1987 is like light years away from what retail is like today. But I, it was that education. Like I, I f- know for a fact that everything I know today, I 100% learned at Barney's. Like, and probably if I had not left Barney's to go to Bergdorf Goodman as a buyer, I probably, I for sure, my career would have taken a different turn because it. it it was such an education, but I, I was super ambitious and, you know, like I've jumped around a lot, which another, which is another thing I know kids do today. Mm-hmm. Um, which I am actually super proud of. Like headhunters hate me. CEOs hate me. Cause they, they, they look at my resume as like a bad thing. Like, Oh, you jump around too much. I look at it as totally interesting. You know, like I was super ambitious. I, if I could do this, then I want to do that. If I can't do that, I want to do something else. And I was so happy to jump ship. That's also how you make more money. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, that's, that's why most younger people jump around is that that nice little 20, 30% kick hello? every time. I mean, <laughs> I only look stupid. I mean, no, but that's the thing. Like you've got to, well, I, and so I'm super proud of all the jumping around that I did. Um, but I also understand that it's harder to play someone like me, and it became harder later in my career, because it was like I didn't just do buying. And then, you know, I sort of went from retail to design, then I got to work in design at Ralph Lauren, and then, but I didn't just do design, so it's like I wasn't really qualified for either. And, you know, in the end, it's all worked out, but there was a period in sort of the, in the mid-2000s where stuff was not so interesting for me, but... You know, well, let's. I I don't want to hone in too much on on anything like that, but I from other people that I've talked to about you and kind of studied and research on you in general, like you are this jack of all trades because yes, you have you're a buyer, um, you are a designer, you are a, a trend forecaster, you are like the complete package of fashion and the fashion world and clothing world, and that's. I want to say that that's that's maybe trying to become a more common thing, but if if so, great. But you're the first person, and well, go ahead. Sorry, no, no. I mean, I I do. I mean, and and then I think especially if you talk about social media, like none of this, none of this was planned. Like, I didn't, <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> Actually, it was all planned. No, not at all. Like, I mean, I'm so stupid that like I just. It never would have occurred to me that, so my, so here, let's do this. So in sure. 2010 is when you became aware of me. I mean, I know this for a fact, like people became, anybody listening to this became aware of me in 2010. And why I know that is because in 2009, I was living in Los Angeles working for a 
a t-shirt company that VF owns, Splendid. Trust me, m- nobody knew about me then, which okay. was fine. I was 49 years old and I was living in LA and I had a really nice life. I was super happy, just, but I, it took me a while to get to that place. In 2010, I was hired to be the men's fashion director at Neiman Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman. And it was the men's shows in January. Like I literally left LA and landed in Milan. And on the first day of the shows was my first day of working for Neiman Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman. And on that day, Tommy Tan and Scott Schumann took my picture. And they were, you know, published that week in terms of their blogs or GQ.com. Sure. And people became aware of me. And then, you know, like less than a month later, um, uh, oh, fuck, why am I <laughs> blanking out on his name? Um, Lawrence Schlossman wrote, you know, something about me on Sartorially Inclined. Yeah. And then, like, it just, and then, and then I became like, you know, content on Tumblr. I'm like, what's Tumblr? <laughs> <laughs> why didn't they spell this right? Yeah, Idiots. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is it like a porn thing? Like, <laughs> It is now. Yeah, um, it very much is now. I love Tumblr. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, and so it was, so literally within six months, I, like, all this stuff started happening. And it was like, I still wasn't really aware of it, like, what the power of it was. But I was aware that it was something. And I was aware that it was something that didn't exist before. And, you know, and, and I know because people said, like, where did you come from? It's like, well, most recently I came from LA, but, you know, I'd been doing this for 20 years before. Right. It's just that there wasn't, you know, when you are sort of out of it for seven or eight years, like, the world keeps going, and, you know, Josh Peskowitz and all these guys were like, you know, where'd you come from? Well, I was there long before you, and I <laughs> and I just kind of reemerged, and right. then, you know, and so, again, I'm super grateful, and I'm convinced the only reason young people are interested in me is because of my tattoos. Well, I would say your tattoos are very cool. I mean, I'm looking at like you, you have two full sleeves and they're great. And the beginning of a sock, but it's way too painful. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. I like it like this. Yeah, it looks good. Thank you. But there is, there's more than just your, the cool mustache and the confidence in the cigarettes that you have and that you were smoking and all that other stuff. Like there, there is. And I think, on, on one hand, I think it's really interesting that you are calling that out as like, look, this is where it comes from. But obviously, you have to be talented and smart enough to be in an industry and successful enough to be there for 20 plus years and still be alive and still be doing it. Uh, and then also, yeah, people took your photos, but you had to look good and have some because the reason why people took your photos is not just because you look cool, but because everything that you had was so unique that no one had ever seen it before. That first gray suit that I wore that Scott Schumann took a picture of, which is actually, a, I mean, I'm, I love that was picture. Was it Sean Brown? No, it was J. Crew. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't afford Tom Brown then, but I knew how to get it tailored to look like... Well, see, therein, therein lies my point, is, yeah, that's fine. Like, I can, so many other people could go and buy that J. Crew suit too, but no one could wear it the way you were wearing it and look the way you looked doing it. Well... I, but see, here's the thing, and I, I really, I do mean this, fun, like, and I still think this. I just thought that was what you were, that was required in order to work in the business. It didn't occur to me that what I was doing was anything special. I thought that's just the price of entry. Like, if you want to work in fashion, then you have to look cool. Yeah. It didn't occur to me that, I guess what I'm saying isn't that there are some people who don't, <laughs> which is what I'm saying. No, no but okay. I'm always shocked that, like, wow, I, okay, like, I didn't. I thought that in order to work, you had to like look the part. Yeah, I still think that. Good, you know. And when I when I would hire people at JC Penney, when I would hire whenever I would whenever I hire people, I'm looking at you, I'm judging you because I think that's what was done for me. That's right. how I learned how to get better. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you you talked about too is you had this mentorship at such a young age, and someone was more or less empowering you to make these decisions whether it's Nikki putting quarters and nickels on swatches to taking you on buying trips, like how important is it to have some type of mentor in like, in like kind of honing that development? Well, I, listen, I, 
Of course, I, I think it's super important. And I think it's really hard to, you know, I've never really identified like, oh, you're my mentor. I mean, I don't know what that means. Like in AA, we talk about sponsor. Will you be my sponsor? Sure. Yeah, it's a sponsor. It's you know, basically, that's what it is. I mean, yes. Yeah, so I think it's super important. You call um, them at two in the morning and you say, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know, I try to do this. I, I don't do a very good job, but I do every once in a while, like, you know, yesterday I did this with a kid that, you know, I feel like it's my, it's my, also my obligation, but my, but interesting because I think you need to at least touch base with kids because it's a whole different world. Like I just hear somewhat the same, but completely different circumstances, the mm. same stories of like what I went through. And, you know, my piece of advice for anyone who's in this period, because this is what I always say. Entry level sucks. It doesn't matter what the fuck you're doing. It doesn't matter who the fuck you're doing it for. It doesn't matter how much money you're making. It's never enough. Yep. And it's not fun. Yeah. It sucks. And guess what? It will change. It yeah. will change. Like, it, I, there are no guarantees in life, but there is that guarantee. It will change. Now, it might get worse, but it's going to change. And then it will get better. And, you know, unfortunately, and I do think that, um, you know, even 30 years ago, there were prodigies and there were, you know, 20-year-olds that were CEOs of companies. I mean, it can happen just like people win the lottery. It does happen, but mm. it's not happening to you. And it didn't happen to me. Like, you know, part of it is just suiting up and showing up and just keep doing the right thing, the next right thing. And even when you don't want to, and even when you think there's nothing in sight, because the, so many things in life happen like in an instant, um, and it's like you have you it your life could change instantaneously tomorrow. I mean, you could step in front of a car and your life would change instantly. But also, True. you know, sometimes you can be at a place two years, three years. They don't appreciate me. They don't appreciate me. And the next thing you know, your boss quits, and guess what? They give you that job. Like that's what happens. You know, it that's so you just have to be in the right place at the right time. And part of that is just by showing up and showing up when you don't want to and doing what you don't want to do. And it's not interesting and it's not, you know, it's not copy. Like it's not Instagrammable, but like <laughs> over time, it will become that. Yeah. You know, well, I was 50 years old when this life started happening for me. <laughs> You're listening to Blamo. We'll be right back. I love to travel, and I think I'm getting it down to a science. I grab a few dope outfits, some running clothes, toiletries, and I'm out the door. What do I pack it in? My away carry-on. I recently upgraded my flimsy duffel that gave me back pain and switched to a proper roller from away. It's made with a premium German polycarbonate that is super strong but ultra light. It's perfect for me, because I'm a little hard on my stuff. And thanks to those four 360-degree wheels my suitcase is on, I can zoom past everyone in the terminal and get straight to my gate. But my favorite part of my carry-on, it's that built-in USB charger. I can stop walking around like a clown looking for power and charge my iPhone with my Away carry-on. It's got enough juice to charge my iPhone up to five times. Right now, Away is giving Blamo listeners $20 off a suitcase. Just visit awaytravel.com forward slash Blamo and enter promo code Blamo at checkout. So go to the new site, pick out a carry-on, and get moving. Visit awaytravel.com forward slash Blamo. I mean, one of the things that that's really cool is so you'd mentioned JC Penny. Um, you were a part of this this relaunch of JC Penny with uh, a, my old old boss, uh, Ron Johnson. Uh, Ron Johnson, who was the senior, he well, he was basically the guy who made Target Target for listeners, and then he made Apple, uh, he Apple, made Apple Apple retail. retail. Yeah, and he's he's the real deal now. I mean, I know he's running Enjoy now, but um, one he was tasked with totally rebranding and relaunching JCPenney, and you were his guy. It was the most amazing year of my life. It was so fucking cool. <laughs> it was so great, and I love him. I think Ron Johnson is one of the most inspiring, He's the best. smartest, and you know, all this shit you read in the paper about him and about it and you know, what I have actually never said publicly, but I'm happy to say it today, is you know, I don't, listen, mistakes were made, absolutely. I don't fund. I I really believe that fundamentally everything that that Ron wanted to happen 
was right. It's just the order in which it happened wasn't. Mm. You know, it's like so many things. You know, they they're just retail is about change, and I think we're the slowest organisms on the planet to you know to adapt to those changes. Yet we speak about it. We need newness. We need newness. 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 Like, but nobody does anything differently. It's like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different (laughs) results. Um, And that's kind of what retail has been, is like, has been like for the past 30 years. Yeah, that's true. Um, And, you know, and, and what was so great about JCPenney was this idea that, you know, and I know it's stuff, but like you're really, it's really being of service to society because, you know, not everybody, and I certainly know that it's the J. Crew suit story. When you're not in a position to wear the kinds of clothes that I get the, you know, I, the uh, opportunity to wear today, I had to shop in places like Gap, JCPenney. Well, I didn't necessarily shop at Pennies. I would have loved to have shopped at the Pennies that we were creating. Um, because, and you know, I think that again, Zara, H and M, all this high street stuff, it mm-hmm. is service. You know, it's also terrible that a lot of people just treat it as throwaway fashion, and they, which is their prerogative. But I still believe that you know, not everybody can, or not everybody prioritizes clothes the way that I do. So it's great that there's this, that there are options out there. You know, mm-hmm. forty years ago, there wasn't anything like that. Um, and it was so great because we could do something because of our scale and really provide amazing product at a really great and fair price. And so what's wrong with that? Like, I think that's kind of yeah. an amazing idea, you know? I, I tell the story about Harris Tweed. So, you know, we, I identified early on, like, okay, how cheap can we make a cashmere sweater? I mean, we could be competitive with Uniqlo cashmere sweaters. That was easy because we had the same kind of scale. And so we did that. But I was also like, what about a Harris Tweed jacket? How cheap could we make a camel hair jacket, a Harris Tweed jacket, things mm-hmm. like that, that, you know, people would really want to have. So we did a $150 camel hair jacket. And I believe that the Harris Tweed jacket was $199. With a fair markup. It wasn't like the same markup that they get for everything, but it was like something that the store could accept. Mm-hmm. So as a as a total gesture to me, they were like, all right, we'll write an order. You know, So we bought two swatches of Harris Tweed. And for them, it was the smallest order of anything they'd ever written, which was 10,000 units. Oh, wow. But when we sent the order to Harris Tweed... It was, you know, it takes two meters to make a jacket. So right. there were 20,000 meters of Harris Tweed fabric that was made. It was the single biggest order they'd ever received, you know. And for JCPenney, it was like the smallest order. So I got some like award for that because it was like, you know, helped out those people in Scotland. Like, yeah. I, I mean, how amazing is that? Like, you know, and I'm so pissed I don't have one of those jackets. But, <laughs> but it was stuff like that that was super cool you know, to be able to do. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because like Ron Johnson is, is notorious for being very much ahead of his time. Um, and in terms of how retail kind of needs to be and and it's tough. And I think, you know, and I I only know what I've heard from Ron Johnson do interviews and that's it. But I mean, he talked about how, how important it was to kind of, I hate using this term, but like disrupt that industry. And the board of JCPenney, which other people have read, like just wasn't that wild about it. And they're really struggling. They're really struggling because of that. And, you know, it's funny because one of the big news things that I read yesterday about JCPenney was that JCPenney is finally accepting and uh, offering Apple Pay, right? Right. Which is right. like, I saw that. yeah, that's, that's kind of like where we are in terms of innovation uh, in, in the retail space. And it's, it's hard and like it, that kind of really bummed me out too because also, you know, being from the Midwest, I'm from St. Louis, like I there was no cool stores that I had. There was a skate shop called Soka, which was called Sick of Kissing Ass. <laughs> and then there was Mr. Guy. And right. I remember Mr. Guy had diesel jeans and I, you know, I think I saved for like, you know, three months to buy a pair of diesel crats. And <laughs> God, I'm, I, I hate looking at old photos of me. But That's amazing. <laughs> But that, you know, seeing what, what Ron was doing, you know, I, I wish that, 
you know, it would have gotten to stick around. But fortunately for someone like yourself, I mean, you continue to just go onward and upward. Well, listen, it was a uh, what's sad about that or any retail retailer, legacy retailer, you know, you read about the trouble with Sears, you read about the trouble with Nemo Marcus, you read about the trouble with, you know, Saks. I mean, mm-hmm. the problem with all that is, is how many lives it affects. Not, yeah. I'm not even talking about the customers, but the people who work there. And so, you know, I was always super sensitive, even though it might not have appeared that way, but I was super sensitive to the people who would, you know, spend their careers there or do spend their careers there because it's, it's hard. Like, we're, as I said, I think we're organisms, we're so resistant to change, and yet mm-hmm. it is going, and if we don't do it, it's going to happen for us. And I think that's the, the sad part of these stories is that, you know, unfortunately, I think the market, markets will conspire, and not all of them will be around. And um, that's super sad, because you'd like to think that there was a way to maybe change that. And, you know, like I said, I don't think that any one person has the right answer and maybe it will take like Amazon, like a total disruptor who comes out of left field to be able to, to, you know, survive. I hope it's not just that, but you know, the, the kinds of requirements and the problem was that, you know, um, it was a publicly traded company. And I do know that that's the biggest problem with fashion and, and retail and public and, you know, the, the, the markets are not necessarily, the best fit because those short-term metrics and gains don't always align with what long-term things need to happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the problem that we've gotten ourselves into. I mean, honestly, the the bottom line is it's greed. You know, the problem with with retail today is greed. Everybody thought that they could have more stores, you know, bigger, better, and in overexpand, in expanding and Mm -hmm. overexpanding, they overextended themselves. And so the problem is that you know, when I always love this, when those LVMH like Dior or different people have said, oh, China's a problem. Well, first of all, China's a numbers game. So how can you say so? But yes, if you open seven Gucci stores in Shanghai, that's probably <laughs> your problem, not China's problem. That's true. And so it's like, <laughs> you know, I would put my money on China any day of the week, but are they going to have the same economic cycles that we have? Of course they are. Some some quarters are going to be up and some quarters are going to be down. Yeah. But if you have seven or 12 stores in a market and then you're you're going to write off China as being a bad market, that's your that's on you, dude. Like <laughs> there's nothing wrong with China. Um and so uh, th- I think that that's kind of and now we're in this position where the reality of like how people our behavior has changed. I mean, well, you missed it, but I mean, I I had Fresh Direct delivered today. I've had Mr. Porter delivered today. I've had Amazon delivered today. (laughs) For a retailer and a a person who loves stores, where was I in a store? Like, Ah. I- But you were still purchasing. I'm a a consumer. I didn't say, because commerce is going to (laughs) happen. Ah, okay. It's just the way that it's going to unfold is completely different. And so- you know, it breaks my heart. I love stores, but I'm not carrying around shopping bags. I mean, yeah. 25 years ago, 30 years ago, it was a badge of honor to carry a Bergdorf bag down Fifth Avenue. Now it's like, ew. You know, if someone my age in their 50s defines success by the, as the ability to wear jeans I to work, I oh, define success as the ability to carry nothing. Because I used to have to carry a fucking laptop and binders and, you know, both hands full and it was like heavy and you're walking down the street and it's like you're sweating. You don't have to do that anymore. It's all on the phone. Like That's true. And it's so awesome. Like, that's the best thing ever. So, but we don't carry shopping bags. Like, why would you do that? Yeah. It, it gets delivered to you. It's like stupid. Yeah, I don't want to carry anything, and that to me is is, is a mark of success. <laughs> well, of the many kind of marks of success, there's a lot of stuff that uh, you've done, and I just want to talk about a couple of those. When you were at Bergdorf, because um, you were the men's director of, of Bergdorf, is that your title? Fashion director. Fashion director. Yes. Pardon me. Um, you brought in brands that weren't there at all, and one of those brands was Visvim, and to me, like. It's true that Visvim existed in the United States market, but being at Bergdorf is very different than, and I love Union and 
other places, but like it's very different than that. And like how I mean, and well, the bigger thing is because of that, so many people know about Visvum now because now Visvum is in the Bergdorf catalog. So there's all these other things that are, were happening, and people that you know I didn't know are are telling me about like Visvum. They're just like, oh yeah, have you heard of this brand? And that's because c- of you. Well. <laughs> Actually, you're right about that. Yeah. I'll never forget when I inter- when I was interviewing. I you know I I kind of had a notebook of some stuff and and I said, "Have you know? Do you guys look at Visvim?" And they were like, "What's that?" And you know, and again, I just thought that was like, and I only knew about it because I lived in L.A. and I would go into Union. I couldn't yeah. afford it, but I would like look at it and dream about it and try it on. And I bought you know a pair of shoes when I could afford. You know, like I saved my money and bought a pair of shoes, so I had a pair of FBTs. Mm-hmm. And that's like, so again, I just th- thought that was like, I did the work, like I researched it, I learned about it, I owned a pair. So it's also what I say about like me today is like, I'm a customer and I'm a really good customer, you know, for a lot of stores and a lot of places, because I also think that's my job. Like, do I get, am I gifted shit all the time? But I also buy shit all the time because I, <laughs> A, because I love it, but B, because I think it's my job. Like, it's my obligation is to patronize us. Like, yeah. you know, and so I'm happy to do it. I love doing it, but um, I'm also happy to, to get a discount. I'm also happy to accept a gift. But, you know, but at the end of the day, I can sit in, in a room and go, oh, wow, I'm one of the best customers here. Right. Which is good. You know, we need that. Yeah. So, yeah. So I remember, you know, talking to them about it. And of course, we went to the showroom in Paris and, you know, they, it was just funny, you know, like to see the Bergdorf's people that were there in their little bow ties and suits and like what was going on with Hiroki and the rest of that culture. And, you know, and, and they didn't initially say, oh, sure, we'd love to sell Bergdorf's. They were like, we want to come and see the store. Mm-hmm. And so Hiroki came to visit and I wasn't there. I wasn't, I was traveling or something. So I wasn't there when he came, but he had a good impression of Bergdorf's as one would. And, mm-hmm. you know, Bergdorf's is an amazing store. And, um, and, you know, and then they said, yes, we could buy it the next season. So, you know, and then I'll never forget, we had a meeting with Linda Fargo and, and, and the store people, store design people, because we put a little shop in and it was a snowstorm and Hiroki was running super late and it was during women's fashion week and Linda needed to go. And she was really irritated. Like, why is this person keeping me late or, you know, keeping me? And it's like, I've got other stuff to do, but he totally charmed her as well. I mean, he's a very charming guy, you know, and again, he's like a great ambassador for what he does. And I think the great designers are, that's the common denominator. Like Ralph Lauren. I mean, hello, like, Tom Ford, Gucci, Tom Ford, Tom Ford, Tom Ford, right. Saint Laurent, like an amazing ambassador. Um, Rick Owens, like lives the part, you know, Tom Brown, hello, like, and Hiroki Nakamura is exactly that. And I think that when, and that's what's so great about working in places like Bergdorf's when you have the opportunity, because Hiroki would come and meet with Linda and then Linda can also be seduced. And I think that's really at the end of the day, really what this business is about is seduction. I mean, you've got to be seduced in some way. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you don't want to part with your money. Yeah. There's uh, another big, you know, champion of a brand uh, that you were is, is Tom Brown, at least from, I know that Tom Brown has had his own, you know, success in the women's world and things like that. And, you know, and they've grown a ton in Asia, but when you, even when you Google Tom Brown, there's photos of you. Like, this is, it's just what it is. Um, I, I mean, I know that you and Tom are friends, but how did that relationship start? Well, I actually met Tom when he was very first starting his business. And okay. he came to me because I was working with a small designer at the time, a guy named John Bartlett, and he wanted someone who had, you know, who did what I was doing for John to help him get started. And, um, and this was like 2002, you know, and, and at the time, I needed a job and I had to move. So I moved to Miami for, for a job and couldn't really help him get started. But I did, we did meet a few times. And so I knew Tom, you know, long before he became Tom Brown. Mm -hmm. But I can think of no one who, again, has earned everything. I mean, he's done this all like, I mean, he's just really one of those super special, super talented people that you just know when you see them, 
you just know that they're going to like succeed because mm-hmm. he was living the part. He was a hundred percent the part. And you know, he totally got men into suits at a time when tailor clothing continues to be kind of a nothing category. It's That's like true. a a dying category. And, you know, I, I don't know their business model, but, you know, they, believe me, they sell a lot of shirts and sweats and other things, but, you know, fundamentally he has stuck to his guns and he has not veered from that path, which is, again, another common trait of, you know, Ralph Lauren, it's, you know, because you don't change, you know, Steve Jobs, because you don't change. Like when you have that vision that you are, it's unwavering. I really believe that's the key to success. And the problem with so many things today is, you know, committees get involved. Some middle manager decides to, you know, insert their opinion. It's like, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Just work with me here. You know, it's like, it. that's the problem today is too many middle managers are involved. Right. So one of the other things, and, and, I want to be conscious of your time here, and so I won't. I won't waste it. But uh, you and people talk about personal brand, and like, oh, what's your personal brand? Like, you know, a lot of brands I know they'll put more thought into their Instagram than they will a website because nine times out of ten, you know, say you and I are talking about a clothing brand, or you're like, oh, this company, I'll grab my phone, I'll type it in, you know, check out their Instagram or whatever that is. You're kind of the king of the personal brand. Um, I mean. And, you know, you were talking about, oh, I'm older and all this stuff, but you, you know what you're doing. Like, who, how did you learn this? What, what, what happened here? You know, I, the only reason I'm on Instagram is because of, after I got fired for Neumanns and Bergdorf's and was working with Guilt and Park and Bond, like I was sitting in a kind of a bullpen area with Josh Peskowitz, Chris. Yeah, Lawrence was there too. Lawrence, yeah. Chris, Chris Wallace, Tyler Thorson. You know, we're sitting in this corner and somebody mentions Instagram and I was like, oh, what the fuck is that? And it's like, <laughs> is that another? Because I was so busy with Tumblr, you know, like trying to do stuff. One network at a and time. And it's like, here. oh, fuck, another thing I have to do? Yeah. But what was so shocking is just how much, I mean, listen, I am very grateful to Tumblr and I love Tumblr, but we just, I use it, I don't use it the same way. But like Instagram was that kind of perfect synthesis of creation and you know, it like sparks something that everybody, listen, I am not a photographer, but you, we can all do our own version of something. And, you know, some people have some amazing feeds. Some people just have an interesting, you know, approach. Some people overshare and overpost. I'm kind of an underposter at this point. But the point is, is that it's a, it's a, it's such a great scrapbook. You know, it's just like at the end of the day, it's a diary. It's a visual diary that, you know, and I think that more people than not, are voyeurs and want to sort of look in on things and then it can be super informative it can be you yeah. know super funny it can be you know beautiful it can be a, any number of things it can be terrible but it's a it's so great to be able to instantly it's your calling card you know it's a way to learn about someone in a very efficient manner yeah um but i i i I only know about it because of like kids. So I started pretty early on. I think in September of 2011 was when I, and it's my understanding it only started in 2011. I don't know precisely when, but yeah, I think I think it did. I remember a friend of mine was trying to get me to sign up for it, and I didn't do it. And he did, and his his username is like at his first name. Right. It's like you know, I was like, wow, I, I probably could have done that, but I'm an idiot. Right. I was like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> no one's going to use this app. <laughs> no, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really standing the test of time. I and mean, I just saw another one of those stories on, I don't know, WWD or, or BOF about, you know, Snapchat is like that Instagram is migrating more snap and it's weird. Like nothing gets Snapchat, but I, ne- I didn't get any love on that thing at all, but I didn't really, let's say, know how to use it. I would correspond with my nephew, you know, who was like 11 years old. Like that's how we sort of talk to each other. But I never really got the Snapchat thing, but the stories, everything in the ecosystem of, of Instagram is very simple. Right. And I think that's really at the end of the day, I'm fundamentally lazy. So it's, uh, it just works for me. Well, and like, you know, and your brand too, like, I mean, the other day, um, I, I'm on the subway and I turn around and it's you. You were, you, I were, you were on an ad campaign for like a water company? Icelandic water. Yeah. <laughs> 
how did did that happen because of social media yeah well i mean therein lies my my other point like you 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 know what you're doing no i don't (laughs) (laughs) um so uh, we're, we're starting to wrap up a little bit but what you know the other thing is your style is extremely it's all over the map i i love that about you like it's always you it's always nick wooster but i've seen you wear like soloist to rick owens to tom brown to i mean all i was like tom and ya or something yeah lardini you have your own brand um what are the stuff that like what's what are you into right now i mean or maybe what were the last personal orders you placed (laughs) well I mean, the last two things that I just acquired were the Supreme Louis Vuitton bag, which I'm very happy to say I'm... I know, I saw it coming in. I was <laughs> shocked. I mean, I was shocked, too, that I was able to get one, but I was happy that I could, could do that. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm, am I influenced by that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Do I, you know, do I believe the hype? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, does that make me a hype beast? Is that what the kids call it? absolutely like (laughs) guilty as charged but it's also fucking cool like yeah you know everybody needs a red duffel bag um and i got a greg lauren montclair uh jacket which is again like so fucking cool like i'm interested in stuff that's really fucking cool and so for me the supreme vuitton bag fits that bill the greg lauren montclair jacket is so fucking beautifully done like it's really cool you know the soloist is really well done yeah elena dawson is really beautiful you know paul harnden is really beautiful rick owens just i'm always amazed by the level of like craftsmanship that goes into these clothes so it's like they're beautiful pieces and they're so well thought out and so for me that's what's super interesting is something that's well done um i mean the polo that i'm wearing today because i'm sort of into polo shirts all of a sudden like where did that come from it's j crew but it's like a beautiful yeah i was trying to it looked like like, fred perry or something it's beautiful right so it's like you know so i'm not um (laughs) i'm not a complete snob but you know but the point is is that if something is well done and beautiful then i'm interested in it so uh, i think you know Oh, and Craig Green. I mean, I cannot oh, say Craig enough Green. about Craig Green. Yeah. Like those laced trench coats and anoraks mm-hmm. are, you know, and I have one of each. I have a black one and a khaki one. One's a trench coat, one's the anorak. And like, they're so fucking cool because <laughs> it's not like anything else. And I think that's what, at the end of the day, that's the stuff that's the most interesting is what's not like anything else. Yeah. So one of the other things, if you had to look back, at the past 10 years and you know like people say the 60s was you know like mod fashion or you know skinny suits and stuff if you had to look back and like what was 2000 to 2010 fashion and then what's 2010 to now fashion like what eras would you call that i know that's a big thing you think and you can just say fuck off if you don't want to answer it but i'm curious i have no idea i mean you know the the 2000s to me were sort of like I don't know, the runway to, to now. And I think since 2010. Because you have the birth of hashtag menswear, the birth of, of the Nick Wooster memes and Wooscott all over the internet. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I think that the 2000s, like the 90s, were kind of a nothing, yet obviously something. I right. mean, you know, the 80s were so obvious, like the 70s and the 60s of like a look, you know new wave you know with those like kind of permed hairdos and like shoulder pads out to here and you know really gaudy jewelry i'm talking about the 80s now and the 90s were minimalism you know it was like the first it was helmet lang it was jill sander it was like everything was really pared down compared to the 80s like hair started to be really straight if Mm -hmm. you look at calvin klein in those days it was like really chic and it was very minimal and that's where all that minimalism came from and i think in the early 2000s it became about you know tom ford at gucci started to add decoration and there was like a little more life and so it was kind of a a runway to what i really would call the 20 you know from 2010 until now is just like hodgepodge lodge like it's just a little bit of everything and so yeah 
you know, that's what, and so it's a, it's a time of total self-expression. And I think that's what social media has done is given everyone a microphone and a camera and a, you know, and a, and a voice. And that's been probably a defining feature of this generation or this moment is just total self-expression. Yeah. Cause I'm a little torn about like, then the reason why I'd asked you that question is like, I'm very torn about what this is that we're in right now, because you know, I'm looking at photos of people on the internet that I think are really cool and they're wearing weird stuff. Like from, you know, there's a big fascination with merch right now and really cheap clothes and then really expensive clothes juxtaposed next to it. And then you have like Vetmont's, which is, you know, I walked by Saks the other day and their their window display is basically like a garbage stack of clothes. And it's, I'm, I don't know. I think the reason why I criticize it in my head is because I don't understand it. And I want to be able to put it into a box and say, yeah, like fashion's this. Like, like you know, 2010 or whatever, that you have this hashtag menswear and it's all about like high Italian, you know, Anglo-American, whatever fashion. And that's it for me. And, but like this, I don't understand what it is. And even now, like I'm like, okay, I got these Levi's jeans. They're from the nineties that I got from this Japanese guy. And then I, I found this, this old Mickey Mouse shirt. I like this. I, I think I'm cool. I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> but here's the thing. You don't need to know what you're doing. And you're so. right. It is exactly. But you know what? You look exactly like my brother. Like, and I don't mean that is in he a bad cool? way. He is cool. But yeah. He, you know, but, it's just, <laughs> but he doesn't approach it the same way that I do. You know, it's right. like, and that's okay. I think that that's what that whole Vetmont, like Normcore, all that, you know, in the, in the tradition of all that, which I think I said once and I do think is true that like, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but Norcore is going to put me out of business, so I'm not really interested in that, <laughs> and I'm not. Um, but that's okay, and that's but but the two can co- should and do coexist. Like, there's not people should not be as driven or as interested or as obsessed or as you know as I am about the things that I am. But like hashtag menswear, you know, only lasted maybe five years. Like it, it's done. Like, it is. Not, it's over. Look at Lawrence. Like. He's he was off that shit fast, and yeah. you know, and and terrible for Italian tailored clothing manufacturers. But like, I think it just speaks to you know you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Like once sweatpants became like a trend, like nobody's going. It's like me with shorts. I'm not going back to pants. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's just too comfortable right you know which i know is a terrible excuse but it's just the truth i mean i used to never wear sneakers the air max 95 was the first sneaker that i ever wore not at a gym oh and when i was working at ralph lauren like ralph was like oh those are really cool and they were and you know that was like that was the first sneaker that i ever wore on the street right and I am by no means a sneakerhead the way, I mean, I've become one, but no means the way that like, you know, Hiroki Fushiwara and all these people who really, that, that was their life. That's the tradition. For me, it was tailored clothing. For them, it's the street. Like, it's sneakers. Like, I get that. It's right. a different world. But, but I have become one just because they're so much easier. It's like, I love shoes. I just bought another pair. Of, but like, I love shoes. But at the end of the day, I put on sneakers. Uh, yeah, I would probably say that's the same, especially if you're a New Yorker and you're, you're just walking around. Right. Like I can't, I had the CCP drips for a while. I mean, I dropped a stupid amount of money on, on those shoes and I love Carol Christian pole, but then I, I wore them and then I was like, oh shit, this isn't good. Right. The, right. Good, the good thing they is you can put on your coffee. Hurt. T- yeah, they hurt. <laughs> they ended up sitting on a coffee table and just like, yeah, that that's purpose to just stay there and look cool. But, uh, anyway, I, I digress. Um, Thank you so, so much for coming on. This, is, this has been really, really good. <laughs> um, Thank you for having me. Uh, just to wrap this up, is there any other stuff that I didn't ask you or, or that you wanted to discuss or mention or anything? I'm good. Okay, cool. Well, Nick, thank you so much. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, bye. You've been listening to Blamo. If you like what you heard, leave a review. It helps let others know and discover the show. Also, if you like this episode, there's plenty more where it came from. Subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes 
on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. You can find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast, or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. Hey, I know I said this in the last episode, but keep them coming. We're working on a, a special holiday episode where we're going to do a lot of Q&A, and so any questions you have, how do I wear this, was it cool to talk to this person, you should talk to this, keep them coming, I love it, keep sending the emails. Thanks everyone, we'll see you next week.